0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to uh, return to Genesis 17 as we continue our study of Genesis, which really is uh, at the moment working its way into a mini-series on on the sacraments. This morning we're going to look really only at a couple of verses out of this great chapter. We'll begin reading with verse 9 and read through verse 11. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep My covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is My covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Heavenly Father, we do look to You this morning to teach us, to guide us, to speak to us, Father. We so desire to hear Your voice. Speak to us through Your Word, O oh Father, and teach us these things, these principles, that we would learn them soundly for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last time we began our study of this great chapter, and you'll recall that I introduced last week's message by saying that it's important for us to Uh, get these principles that are being set forth here in Genesis 17. There are a number of important principles here and a misstep here can cause a lot of confusion elsewhere. And actually there are places, if we misstep in the right way, where the difference can be a difference of salvation or no salvation. It really is that significant. That's why we're taking the time that we're taking And the illustration that I used last time was the illustration of algebra. Some of us maybe liked algebra. Some of us maybe didn't like algebra. Some of us maybe avoided algebra. But if you took algebra, you'll recall that there are principles at the beginning that you have to get. If you don't get them, well, then it's in a terrible mess, isn't it? Um, Because... Uh, you, you not only have to get these principles, but you have to have them down like the back of your hand, because so many other uh, op- mathematical operations, they really rely uh, on the, the, the basics, don't they? They build upon the basics. The same thing is going on here, uh, and what I want to do this morning, before we really bring in some more principles, is, I, you know, there's, a, there's an illustration that Dr. Watt used to use, one of my seminary professors, and he would, he would like learning to painting a wall and he would always say, listen, you know we learn the way you paint a wall. If you, if you try to do it all at once, it's going to run to the floor. The best is to put on thin layers at a time, which is what I'm trying to do. It might seem to some of you who know some of this stuff a little better, it might seem like we're going slow, but I think it's important that we put a thin layer on at a time. We don't want it to run to the floor. Some of this takes a little while. Some of this Makes us scratch our heads. Some of this seems very counterintuitive to us, so it's important that we take our time. What I want to do is revisit two principles that we looked at last week, and in doing so, I don't want to just merely uh, recount what I said last week with the same passages of Scripture. I'd like to revisit the principles and put another coat of paint on the wall by looking at a few other passages, and this time I want to take it in more of a history of salvation kind of way, where we start with Genesis 3.15, and we look at where we have come from and to where we're going throughout the rest of Scripture, and as we know Genesis 3, we know it quite well, in Genesis 3, we we read of the worst of news, don't we? You know, there's so many songs that have been written. Um, you know, something is wrong with the world today. You know, I mean, we have so many lyrics of songs that we hear on the radio where everyone recognizes that there's something wrong with the world. But we don't need to be in any kind of uh, darkness about what's wrong with the world. We know that Genesis 3 uh, informs us what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is that our first parents rebelled against God and every suffering in every form, every description, chaos, sin, disaster, suffering of about every kind of, of flavor owes its origin to Genesis 3. Adam rebels against God and all humanity plunges into darkness. That's, that's what takes place. And now the human race is lost No one has to teach us to be rebels. You ever notice that? No one has to teach our kids to be rebels. Ever notice that? There's one lesson that they have down perfectly, and that's rebelling. In fact, it's hard work, isn't it? It's hard, it's a hard, long struggle to get children to respect your authority, to get children to submit, to get children to surrender. Some of them are easier than others. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it takes a lot of effort. Why? Because we're born into this world bent on rebellion, rebellion against the authority that we first meet. As soon as we open up our eyes, we stare at an authority figure, and the first one we rebel against is that authority figure. And as we rebel against our parents, we rebel against God. And now we're talking about the children, but let's be honest here. We're talking about the kids, but once upon a time we were kids and no one had to teach us to rebel either, did they? And quite frankly, I think really what we are are big kids, aren't we? <laughs> we're big kids. And think about the work you've got to do in your own heart to keep from rebelling against God all the time. Even after, even after the gospel comes to you, in in a saving way, in a profound way. Think of the work that's involved in fighting against sin in your life. No one needs to teach us how to do this. It all goes back to Genesis 3. Why do bad things happen? It all goes back to the curse of Genesis 3. But remember what I said many times when we encounter a dark passage of Scripture, what is always nearby? Grace. And God is like that, isn't He? Grace is always nearby, and we have genesis three fifteen the the good news, the Youngon the proto ygelon, whatever you want to call it genesis three fifteen where you know God says to Satan, Quote, "I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel and Here we have the first proclamation of the gospel and May we may we cherish this verse here. May we cherish it because in it is the promise of a Savior, isn't it? In it is the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, what is Adam to do with this promise? He is to put his trust in this promise. That one is going to come. Uh, who will redeem him? He is to live by this promise. He is to embrace this promise with the arms of faith and and here what we have in Genesis 3:15 is the first glimpse of the covenant of grace. It's the first glimpse of the covenant of grace. God makes his promise to Abraham or to Adam, I'm sorry, and Adam is to embrace the promises. We turn the page to chapter 4 and we find Abel. Abel embraces the promises of God, doesn't he? And we turn the chapter and we we come to chapter 5 and we find that salvation has come to Enoch and salvation has come to the line the, to the genealogical line that's itemized there people who namely people who call upon the name of the Lord and then we turn the page to chapter 6 and we find Noah and what's the story with Noah well Noah believes the Lord Noah embraces the Lord Noah walks with the Lord and then we turn a few more pages, and we come to Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, the covenant of grace comes to Abram. Now, as the covenant of grace comes to Abram, the Lord begins to expand on it so that we can learn more about it. And, In other words, as we turn to chapter 12 and following, the Lord continually unfolds His covenant of grace. And of course, at the heart of this covenant of grace is Genesis 3.15. Namely, the promise of a son. And, of course, the promise of a son, the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a Savior, uh, that also makes central to the covenant of grace the promise of salvation, doesn't it? For what is a Savior going to do? A Savior is going to save His people. So, we find this thread running through the entire Bible. As we continue to study Genesis, we're going to discover that this covenant extends to Isaac, that it extends to Jacob. And turn to the book of Exodus with me. We're going to be looking around at a number of passages throughout the Bible. Turn to the book of Exodus chapter 12. And while you're turning there, you'll, uh, you'll recall that at this point in time, Israel has found themselves in Egypt. And they're, they're being oppressed very heavily by, by Pharaoh and if you look at chapter 2 and verse 24, uh, here the, the people have been calling on the Lord for deliverance from Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, it reads this way, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His what? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And as I said last week, this unity extends into the New Testament. Let me give you some new examples. If you turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're allowed to turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, in, in, we don't just look at it at Christmas time. We're allowed to look at it at other times too. The angel has come to Mary and told Mary, you're going to have a son. You're going to call him Jesus. He's going to be the Messiah. And in response to this, Mary, she utters these words of praise. If you look at Luke chapter 1, verses 54 and 55, you find something quite interesting in her word of praise. in, in, In verse 54, she says, God has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And look at verse 55. As He spoke to our fathers, Two to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And there we see the unity that I've been talking about. Uh, And hold on to the reference of offspring. We're not going to get to it this morning, but it's going to to come up in in probably next week. Um, But one more while we're in Luke chapter one. Zechariah has also had a promise that he is going to have a son. His name would be John the Baptist in a similar manner to Mary. Zechariah gives praise to God. And if you look at verse 68 and the verses that we read as our call to worship, this really is what had me started to think this would make a nice call to worship this morning because it has continuity with the sermon. But it's interesting what Zechariah says in his praise to God. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his what? His holy covenant. The oath that he swore to his father who? Abraham. There we see it again. So it's important for us to see that Zechariah and Mary are praising God for His faithfulness to the covenant that He made with Abraham. And it's important for us to see that John the Baptist is part of the faithfulness to that covenant. And of course, it's important for us to see that Jesus is central to it. He is central to it. And this is picked up in many other places in the New Testament. And uh, furthermore, we see conditionality in this, in this survey. Last week, I introduced unity and conditionality. And conditionality can be a greasy one to get a hold of. That's why I want to revisit it because sometimes people say, okay, is the covenant of grace, is is it conditional? And we get a little leery. Well, we don't want to make it into works. So we say, well, no, it's not conditional. It's it's unconditional. The covenant of grace is unconditional. You have to remember the context of what you're talking about in. You have to always remember the context. If we're asking... How could, or if there's anything that we could do to deserve this grace, if we're asking that, if there's anything meritorious on our part that we could do uh, to warrant this grace, then we have to get rid of that. We have to say, no, the covenant of grace is unconditional in these regards. But if we're talking about how you get into the covenant of grace, how you receive the grace that's being offered in the covenant of grace, how you receive Christ Jesus, well, then not so fast. Uh, There is a condition. And what is that condition? The condition is faith. And I might even qualify that with the word saving. Saving faith. There are numerous types of faith presented to us in the Scriptures. There is only one that is saving. A saving faith that turns from the world, repents of sins, and walks after God. That is saving faith. Saving faith is a faith that repents. Saving faith is a faith that builds an ark if the Lord asks you to build an ark. That's what Noah did, isn't it? I'm going to flood this place. I'm going I'm to drench this place. Build an ark. Now, Noah could have waltzed down to the coffee shop and said, you know, I heard a rumor. I heard, you know, God says he's going to flood this place and that we probably ought to get busy building an ark one of these days. That's not what Noah did, is it? Why is not what he did? Because he received the promise with saving faith. And when we receive the promises of God with saving faith, it calls us to action. Always calls us to action. Not mental assent. Action. Noah started cutting down trees. Because God's going to flood the place. And we have to build an ark. Saving faith is a faith that calls you to leave your country, your kinsmen, and your father's house when called to go as Abraham did. Abraham doesn't do that. There's evidence from the scriptures. I don't want to get into it now, but there's evidence from the Scriptures, from Stephen's speech, namely. We'll get into it as we study Acts. Where God calls Abraham a couple of times, and he doesn't come. Finally, in, in Haran, God calls Abraham, and he comes. He leaves his father's house. He leaves his countrymen. He leaves his kinsmen. And He comes. That's what saving faith does. And the application of that to us, how do we apply that? Well, we're called to leave the world. We're called to leave the world. We're called to turn from a life of sin. We're called to leave that pattern, that it, that the pattern of living and following after the ways of the world. We're called to leave that. Saving faith can do no other than to turn from that. Why? Because saving faith believes the promises that if we don't, What's going to happen? There's going to be no, no prospect of eternal life for us. But on the contrary, there's only the promise that we will, we will enter into a hell for all eternity. See, mental ascent is not enough. We won't leave. Mental ascent, eh, you know, yeah, that's... wait, You know, I got it on my list. One of these days, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on that diet, I'm going to get on that exercise program, and I'm going to start going to church. That's mental ascent. Saving faith says, Oh my goodness, Jesus, you're real. You really are real. You really are alive. You really are wonderful. You really are beautiful. You really are the most beautiful thing in all of the world. And I can do no other but to follow you. That's saving faith. So, is there a condition in the covenant of grace? Yes, there's a condition. In the covenant of the grace, and that condition is faith—a faith that repents and follows. And without that, there is no salvation. Now, with this in mind, I want to add two more principles, two more important principles. And I know this is hard work, um, but but roll your sleeves up. You you might say this this is hard, and it sounds like theology, and yeah, it does sound like theology because it is theology. And and I make no apologies for that because theology is the study of God and I have no business doing anything up here than studying God. I have no business doing anything else. So I make no apology. There are two, the the churches, listen, people are getting picked off left and right because they have no clue, one, about their Bibles. And that's not going to happen here. Uh, We roll up our sleeves. There are two, Principles, two more principles I want to introduce, and that's the covenant sign and the covenant seal. Now, we've heard these words. What's that all about? Go back to Genesis 17 with me and look at verse 10. Genesis 17 and verse 10. The Lord says to Abram in verse 10, and I got to start using Abraham because his name's now changed. And I had a hard time saying Abram for the first half of this series because I want to call him Abraham because. His name's still Abram. Now I've got the opposite thing going on, so bear with me. The Lord says to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And look at verse 11 with me. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a what? A sign. A sign of What? A sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, a lot of us were here a few years ago when we studied all of this. And that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Isn't it amazing how we forget all that stuff? Here we are studying it again. Um, We have to constantly study these things because you know what happens as the weeks go by? We forget. We get tired. Uh, We forget. What is a... Covenant sign. What is, well, well, Let's back up. Here the Lord is introducing circumcision. He's introducing it as a sign of the covenant. And how are we to understand it? Well, to understand it, we need to throw in another term. It's not a new term to you. It's the term sacrament. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the word ordinance used for sacrament. Uh, you'll hear me use the word ordinance. I still use the word sacrament because I want you to know what I'm talking about, but I'll confess I prefer the word ordinance over sacrament for reasons that I'm not going to get into this morning, but um, maybe we'll get into later. But we might think, well, sacraments, well, we know what that is. That's like the Lord's Supper and baptism. Yeah. If we were to pass out a sheet of paper and all of us would say, okay, the, on the top of the sheet of paper it says, what is a sacrament? And we were to like take our pens and we're like, okay, now what do I write down? Well, that's a different matter, isn't it? Um, we need to understand what in, okay what, what is a sacrament. Um, I want to take you through the history of the church and give you a few definitions. And they start out real simple and they get a little more complicated. But I think the most simple definition that has ever been offered was offered by St. Augustine, where he says he just answers the question with three words. And if you just put down three words on your sheet of paper, you get the answer correct. And he he, his answer was the sacrament is a sacred sign. Three words: a sacred sign. That's 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 an accurate definition of a sacrament. Um, I don't know, six hundred years later or so, seven hundred years later. Peter Lombard comes by. He writes a systematic theology, and in his systematic theology, he writes a a sacrament is quote a visible form of an invisible grace, an invisible form, or I'm sorry, a visible form of an invisible grace. So something we can see, okay, that symbolizes something we can't see. Does that make sense? One of the reformers, Johannes Wallabius writes, quote, now this is a little more complicated, I'll take it slow. He writes, a sacrament is a divinely instituted act of worship. Listen to that. A a sacrament is a divinely instituted act of worship. Let Let me just offer some application on the side before I continue with the quote. This is the reason we don't offer the Lord's Supper just any place. It's a divinely instituted act of worship that takes place. Where does worship take place? It takes place in the community of God. So, I'm not going to go down to uh, Connie's and offer the Lord's Supper down there. You follow me? That's a, that's, that's, that's a crazy illustration, but um, nor am I going to go down there and offer baptism. Does that make sense? A sacrament is a divinely instituted act of worship in which the grace promised by God to the people, and I'm continuing with, with uh, Johannes Wallabias' definition, a sacrament is a divinely instituted act of worship in which the grace promised by God to the people of the covenant, okay? So it's a divinely instituted act of worship in which the grace, which is promised to us, to the people of the covenant, is sealed by visible signs and the people of the covenant are at the same time bound to obedience to Him. If anybody wants these definitions, email me and I'll send them to you. Here's one that's more familiar to you. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. And you all remember the answers to these, right? Question 92. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. You remember that, don't you? Those of you who studied the catechism remember that. Um, Here's another one. This is a simple one, more modern one. A sacrament is a material expression of a spiritual reality. That's pretty good, isn't it? A material expression of a spiritual reality. Dr. Duncan puts it this way, quote, a sacrament is an action designed by God to sign and seal a covenant reality communicated by the Word of God. Uh, Dr. Duncan's really good on this stuff. He's really good on the covenants, I I like reading what he has to say about the covenants. Very sharp on these. I'll repeat his definition: A sacrament is an action designed by God to sign and seal a covenant reality communicated by the Word of God. Okay. In our definitions, as they progress, as they get more, uh, as they start to flesh out, there are two key words that keep appearing, and one word is sign, and the other word is seal. What are these words? What are these words about? Well, let's start with sign. The sign points to that which it signifies. In fact, the word signify, think about it. How's it spelled? S I I'm a terrible speller, so help me out. S I G N Whoa! Uh, Same word as sign, huh? Just with a with a signifies, <laughs> IFI. <laughs> Just a little illuminator you know, light lighten things up. Some of you are looking at me like, I realize this is a lot, but we have to get it. We have to get it. We have to get it. You're going to see why here in a few minutes. You're going to start to see why we have to get this. The sign points to that which it signifies, it points to something else, it points away from itself. It points away from itself. In other words, it, the sign points away from itself to some spiritual reality. Now, here's an important principle to get here. Listen to this quote really carefully. It also comes from Dr. Duncan. He writes, quote, nowhere in the Bible will you find a covenant sign which affects a relationship. A covenant sign always reflects a relationship. Some of you got that already. Some of you are like, okay, could you go on about that? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because I intend to go on about that. There's two words here. Affect, reflect. Now, what is being said is this. God did not enter into covenant with Abraham By virtue of the covenant sign of circumcision. We read it quickly, we might come to that conclusion. That's where we can make a misstep. And it's a big misstep. And it can actually turn about to be such a big misstep that the difference is between a salvation and no salvation. It can quickly go that way. This is how significant this is. We have to sort this out. That's why the Holy Spirit gave us these verses so that we would do exactly what we're doing right now and sort them out. And this mindset today that's like, hey, keep it simple, you know, don't go into all of this stuff. Don't, You know what? Get that out of, let's get that out of our heads. If the Lord really embraced that, we would have probably a 90-page Bible with big print like this, you know, and it'd be written in maybe the third grade or something. You follow me? That's not what we got. My goodness, look what the Lord has given us. And He gives us on average of about 80 years to study this, so we're really without excuse, aren't we? I mean, all the years that the Lord gives the average lifespan is falling because of the opioid crisis, but still it's what, 78 now? 78 years to get some of these principles down? That's not a whole lot to ask. It's actually quite a blessing. Dr. Duncan is using two words here, affect reflect. God does not enter into covenant with Abraham by virtue of the covenant sign of circumcision. Why? God was already in a relationship with Abraham. He was already in a relationship with Abraham years before He gave him the covenant sign of circumcision. I mean, think this through. God initiates the relationship with Abraham back in Genesis 12. Right? Right? And there God made promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed God and he left his homeland to follow after God. And Abraham has been in a close relationship with the Lord for now 24 years. He leaves Haran when he's 75. Our text in, in Genesis 17 tells him he's, at the time of the circumcision, of the introduction of circumcision, he's 99. That's 24 years that Abraham has been walking with the Lord. 24 years. So circumcision does not put Abraham into relationship with God. Circumcision reflects the relationship that Abraham already enjoys with God. Do you see that? That's an important one. That's a real important one. There's a lot of misstepping going on on this one. It's important that we see that. The covenant sign does not affect the relationship. The The relationship is not created by virtue of circumcision. The covenant sign reflects the fact that a relationship is already there. It's already there. Let me put it still another way. Abraham is not entering into a relationship with God as he undergoes circumcision. It's not what's going on. Abraham already has a relationship with God and that relationship will be reflected by the covenant sign of circumcision. Why? We'll get into that a little bit this, this morning. We're going to be done before we can really get into a lot of that. We'll take more of this up next time. But again, let me, let me, let me say this. Sacrament points, the sacrament points away from itself and points to a spiritual reality. The sacrament is something that we can see that points to something that we can't see to help instruct us and strengthen our faith in what we can't see. That's the point of the sacraments. So, what is the spiritual reality that it's pointing to? Well, look at Genesis 17 and verse 7. It's expressed here. In verse 7, the Lord says, I will establish My covenant between me and you. He's speaking to Abraham. I will establish My covenant covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And listen to this. To be God to you. To be God to you. And to your offspring after you. And this is said again at the end of verse 8. If you look at the end of verse 8 he says, I will be their God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Leviticus 26.12 I will be your God. You shall be my people. My people. And that's said in numerous times. It's said numerous times in numerous ways throughout the Old Testament, and we find it repeated in the New Testament, maybe most famously in Revelation 21 3. You don't need to turn there, just listen. You know, you, you know our scripture memory verse we read a little bit ago in Leviticus 26, so all the way back there in Leviticus. Listen to, listen to Revelation 21 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is one of the last things that's written in our Bibles for us. It's the purpose of Genesis 3.15. Humanity's lost. God's not going to leave us this way. He's going to come. In the person of a Redeemer, He's going to gather up those who are His. He is making a covenant to be our God. And He's going to make us into His people. That's the covenant of grace. It goes all the way through the Bible. Now we can start to say okay, it sounds like this. The Lord comes to Abraham, He's walking in darkness, He's walking in pagan idolatry. And the Lord says, you know what? I want you. Come with me. You're in. You're in my covenant of grace. And Abram responds by saying, sure. I'll come. And now, the Lord God is Abraham's God. And the Lord God is the God of Abraham's household. And Abraham and his household have been walking after the Lord in various ways. We see his relationship go up, we see it go down, we see it go up, we see it go down. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But there's still always an operating principle in his heart that's ebbing and flowing up and down. But that fundamental principle is the Lord is our God. He is my God and He is the God of this house. You see that important principle? Again, the Lord was already Abraham's God before he introduced circumcision to him. The Lord was already the God of Abraham's household before he introduced circumcision. The sign does not affect the relationship. The sign reflects the relationship. Is that clear? That's one good way to get it in your mind and say, okay, the sign doesn't affect the relationship. The sign reflects the relationship. That's an important principle. Okay, the seal. This brings us to the second term we need to consider, the seal. What is meant by the seal? Where does that come from? Let's start with the second question. Turn with me to Romans 4. Romans 4. Again, we studied this passage, but that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Romans 4. Romans 4. And for sake of context, I'm going to start reading at verse 7. I'll start reading while you're finding the place. You can find the place and listen at the same time. Romans 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And of course, Paul's quoting from the psalmist, Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Listen to verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? You see, Paul's, Paul's wanting to get this through too, isn't he? It, it, that makes sense why he would write that now, doesn't it? You, you read this without the context of, of uh, Genesis and Genesis 17, and you might think, what is, what, Paul, what do you, what's all this got to do? How does this connect? But if you're thinking about Genesis Seventeen, as Paul probably was as he's writing this. Well, it makes perfect sense. How then was it counted him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a what? A seal. Here's where the key, the term, is introduced to us as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Genesis fifteen, verse six, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's years before the sign of circumcision comes along. And for that matter, Abraham believes the Lord when he leaves Haran, or he wouldn't have left Haran. That's Genesis 12. 24 years before circumcision. But let's zero on in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now before I go any further... Um, Well, never mind. I don't want to take you through that. Here we see the sign of circumcision is a seal of the righteousness. What does that mean? What is a seal? Well, the Greek word being translated seal here is the word "sphragis." Sphragas, kind of a cool word, sphragas. And it means that by which anything is confirmed or proved. Anything is confirmed or proved. In ancient times, many of you will be aware that a seal was commonly used to authenticate things. If a king drafted a document, for example, and he wanted it sent off uh, to, say, another king, uh, how would the receiving king know that the document was real, that someone else didn't draft it and send it? Well, because a piece of wax would be put on on the document, and the king wore a ring known as a signet ring. And on the back of the signet ring, there was cast into it an impression. And he was the only one with that ring. And they'd put the wax on the document and he would push his ring into the wax and it would leave this seal, if you will, uh, on the document. And everyone could say, well, that's the, king's, that's the king's seal. And we do this today, by the way, uh, when you go to see a notary. What does a notary have in his or her desk? They have a stamp. They have that little thing, you know, it looks like a kind of like a funky pair of pliers with this big red round thing on the end of it. And like, you know, the document's drafted and after the document's signed and everything, then he or she takes that stamp and they squeeze it. And it leaves an imprint into the paper, doesn't it? Same saying. It's a seal. It's meant to authenticate the, um, the document. Uh, so, okay, how do we apply this? Well, by the time we get to Genesis 17, Abraham and Sarah are at a very, very low point. And I spent a lot of time uh, with that one a few weeks ago. Genesis 16 is a low spot for them, isn't it? How, How do we know that? Because they haven't had a child yet. They've had this promise of a child, promise of a child, promise of a child. You know, for about 10 years, promise of a child. No child. And they're not... You know, Sarah's now about 75 years old, no child. Abram's about 85, no child. So Sarah says, you know, maybe the Lord's going to do it this way. Take, take my servant Hagar and marry her. and that, That's how the Lord's going to fulfill the promise. That's a low point. And they do just that, don't they? And we know from Genesis 17 that Abram is viewing Ishmael, the son of that relationship, as the promise. This is a low point. And God has to say, and we're going to see this as we continue to study, God's going to have to say, no, 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 no. He's not the son of the promise. Sarah's going to have a son, Abram. So Abram's at a low point in his faith. And let's not be hard on Abram. Where would we be? And, and God comes to Abraham. And he reveals himself as what? Do you remember? I am El Shaddai. Meaning, I am powerful, Abraham. Why does Abraham need to know that? Because it doesn't seem that Abraham believes that now they can have children. It seems that we've got to do it this other way. And God wants to say, no, this isn't any problem for me, Abraham. Your wife's 75 years old. Now you just wait. <laughs> Jesus. You just wait. I'm going to show you. That's no, that's no problem. Um, your wife at 75, I'm sorry. You just wait. Um, I'll show you that that's, that's not a problem. Um, she is going to have a son. And listen, Abram, I'm going to give you something that will strengthen your faith. I want you to get circumcised. I'm going I'm to give you this divinely inspired act of worship. I'm going to institute this for you. Why am I instituting this for you? Is this to affect the relationship? Is this something that's saying, okay, um, we're going to start a relationship today. No, 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 no. I'm going to give you something that reflects the relationship that we have. Namely, I'm going to give you something that reflects the promises that I've made to you. I'm going to give you something that's going to be a sign that points to the reality that I've called you out of the world, that I have made you mine, that you are going to be the recipient of all of the blessings of the covenant of grace that you're in. You and all of the males in your household are to be circumcised. You see how that fits into the context? What is the purpose of the sacrament? What is the purpose of the sacrament? The purpose of the sacrament is to point to a reality that we can't see. What reality? the reality that we've been called out of the world and brought into a covenant relationship with God. And the condition of that covenant, see, you can be brought into the covenant relationship with God. You can be in covenant. Ishmael is going to be circumcised. He's going to be be circumcised. He's in covenant with God. He doesn't believe. It's because there's a condition. The covenant of grace is not going to do any good if you don't believe it. I mean, if we're sitting here this morning, you're hearing all this stuff, and you don't believe it, it's not doing, in fact, it's doing you harm. I I don't want to even say it's not doing you any good. I'm going to say it's doing you harm. You're either coming closer or you're going further away. There's no neutrality under the gospel. So, the sacrament has a dual purpose. If you receive it in faith, it promises blessing. If you don't receive it in grace, it's still a sign. It's a sign of a curse. Of course, God hasn't given it to us to be mean. No, it's an extraordinary blessing that Abram needs because he's low in his faith. He's in a low point. Why do we, Why do we observe the Lord's Supper It's to strengthen us. When these sacraments are properly understood, as we begin to understand them, you'll look forward to it. Why? Because it's a means of grace. It's what we call means of grace. What's a means of grace? It's a way that God supplies grace to us. It's a way that God renews the grace that He's given us. It's a way that God strengthens us in our faith. That's the purpose of the sacraments. It's because we're weak and frail, and we're slow to believe that God gives us visible signs Visible signs that we can see and in some cases feel and in some cases taste. Visible signs that point to invisible reality. But what does it point to? It points to Christ and His blessings is what it points to. It's not about what I'm doing. It's not about what I propose to do. That wouldn't be much of a sign, quite frankly. It's about what God is doing and what God promises to do. Does that make sense? But probably by now, you're starting to see how we can really misstep on this. So, With that, I think that's enough for today. It's probably more than enough. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You, Father, for these chapters that we have, these verses that we have, these principles that we have, Father, that You've given to us. They're hard for us to get our minds around, but You've given us minds you give us all the help that we need. Father, our sleeves are rolled up and we look to You and we pray, Father, that You will continue to teach us these great things, that we would mine this truth from Your Word, that, Father, for Your glory we may be strengthened, and for Your glory, O oh Lord, uh, we, we may be edified and see what the purpose for the sacraments are, so that, Father, we may participate in these sacraments knowing full well what You intend to accomplish with them and that we may receive them with hands that are thankful, and that we may receive them in ways, Father, that you mean them to be to us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.